Well, good morning, church. It's great to be back together again this morning and looking forward to diving into God's Word. So why don't you take your Bibles and open up to Ruth chapter 4. And as you're getting yourself situated there, I want to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon our time together this morning. God in heaven, uh, Lord, we confess to you right now how desperately we need you. Father, how inadequate and insufficient we are in ourselves. God, we believe the words of Jesus that apart from you we can do nothing and God, we are so dependent upon you right now to show up in power. God, we long for you to take the truth of your word. And God, by the power of your spirit to impress it into our hearts, we pray, Father, that your spirit would be working to, God, open our hearts, to soften our hearts. We pray, Father, that your spirit would be taking your word and convicting us. Uh, Lord, in leading and guiding us toward holiness. We pray, Father, that you would be moving in our hearts to produce repentance and faith and joy and encouragement. And Lord, we believe that you will do all of these things because you are faithful and you are good and you love us, your children. We pray, Father, that you would work now in our midst. And we pray this all for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at Ruth chapter 4 this morning... I want to look at it from the angle of redemptive culture. Redemptive culture. Culture is something uh, that we all, I think, instinctively understand. It's something we're often a part of, though we may not often see it uh, taking place in our lives. Culture has been defined as the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize an institution or an organization. Every organization, every business has a culture. Every community has a culture. Every church has a culture. Every home has a culture. Every Christian has a culture. It's also been described as the characteristic features of everyday existence shared by a group of people. Culture is shaped most by what is most valued the people of God are those that value many things, but above all else, in one sense, we value what God has done for us in giving to us redemption. We are, after all, a redeemed people. Redemption ultimately means to be set free or to set free by paying a price. We have been bought with a price, the scriptures say purchased and set free by God to God. We are therefore to be a community of people who both delight in the redemption of God and display the redemption of God. The way we value redemption ought to shape the culture of redemption that we experience in our church. In other words, we are to embrace a redemptive culture. And we see, in effect, in this final chapter of the book of Ruth, the community of God's people who are characterized by this kind of redemptive culture. And in many ways, they model for us and instruct us on how we too can be a culture of redemption. So notice this first as we come to God's word. Redemptive culture embraces the reality, great need. Let's read verses 1 through 4 together. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside friend, sit down here. 
And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me and I know I'm, that I may know, for there is one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Here we see, uh, we get a glimpse into the culture of the ancient world and the people of God. And I want you to just notice this first. Before we, we dive deep into the concept of redemption, I want you to see that if we do not agree on our, uh, the great reality, on our great need, if we don't agree on the problem of humanity, we certainly won't agree on the solution for humanity. A misdiagnosis will make the problem actually significantly worse. Now, so far in the story of Ruth and Naomi, we have seen so much tragedy. We've seen so much difficulty. We've seen so much need. The reality of their situation was filled with great need. In chapter 1, again, we saw that life was hard. Both of these women were widowed, and they begin to return and head back to the land of promise. In chapter 1, we see this beautiful picture of the conversion of Ruth, where she says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. They are returning, yes, physically, but they are returning spiritually to the God of Israel. But as soon as they get back into the land, they realize that they still have problems. They don't have food. They don't have somebody to care for them, to offer them safety and security. And so Ruth heads off into the fields, and she begins to glean from the fields, trusting in the people of God, trusting in the law of God, and trusting in the God of the law. And as she's gleaning in the fields, she has just so happened to stumble into the field of Boaz, who we find out in chapter 2 is actually referred to as her redeemer. She is a close relative of Naomi and of Elimelech. And according to the law, he has an opportunity to redeem them. In chapter 3, we see Ruth and Naomi concocting this plan and going to uh, Boaz in the middle of the night. And in effect, Ruth is proposing marriage, and she's asking for Boaz to take her underneath his protective umbrella. Provide for me what I desperately need. Give me the care. Give me the support. Give me the resources and provision that I so desperately need. But we find out in the end of that chapter that there is a problem. There is another redeemer that is closer in line than Boaz. But we, we also know this, that Boaz is a man of action. He's a man of faith. He is a righteous man, and he's going to take care of things. He sends Ruth home to Naomi with arms full of grain, and he tells her to rest and don't worry. I will take care of this in the morning. And now in chapter 4, it is the next day. Faithful to his word, Boaz has done exactly what he says he's going to do. He's gone into town and he's going to take care of business. And the first thing that we just need to take note of here is that he identified that there was actually a practical need for these women. There were physical needs that they had. They desperately needed food and shelter and security. They were in an incredibly hard position, especially in this culture. 
but they begin to benefit from the culture of redemption that is required amongst God's people. They've already tasted and gotten a glimpse of that with Boaz, but now we begin to see the entire culture that is formed around this idea of redemption. You see, God had specifically structured his people to function in such a way that they would reflect his character as a redeemer and provider for the poor and the needy. The law had stipulated that they were to be a people who cared for those who were outsiders. And that's what we've seen through the kindness of Boaz in the previous chapter. Ruth, the foreigner, had received great kindness by the hand of Boaz because Boaz loved the law of the Lord and he loved the Lord of the law. And now he sets out to function as a redeemer in an even greater way than he had previous to this. He he understands, listen, the framework the Lord had given him. And look at how this unfolds. He walks into the city. He gathers 10 elders. He needs enough to to form a, a witness and a legally binding contract. You see, what we see taking place here, as they meet at the gate, it's kind of like a a courtroom setting. The gates of the city were a place where they looked out, uh, where they were being protected, but it was also a place where they conducted legal business on behalf of the city. It's how they functioned um, to deal with civil matters in this culture. And we're actually watching unfold a redemptive culture in action. There was a need to be met. And they are all now involved in the process. The leaders who represent the people are enacting a process of redemption that God had put in place in his law. God had structured and designed this to be a part of the redemptive community that he had established. Again, let me just make this abundantly clear. God designed his people to embody redemptive culture because it reflects his character. God is himself the great redeemer. God is the one who redeemed them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. He is the one that informs how they're supposed to act and the kind of culture that they're supposed to embrace. This redemptive provision for the foreigner, by the way, foreshadows what God had always intended for the future. Here, Ruth the Moabite is outside the covenant people of God. She's actually one of the enemies of God, at least her her people have historically been. This pulls all the way back into Genesis chapter 12 with the Abrahamic covenant, where God had promised that through this promise and through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that God would extend redemption and salvation to the four corners of the earth. And the way that they met this need practically is actually pointing us to something much deeper and much greater. You see, they understood that they had a responsibility to meet the physical needs of the outsider, but ultimately God was teaching them and instructing them and pointing them toward this reality, that they were to be a people who were to meet the spiritual needs of the outsider. This is the underlying theme of the entire book. This is ultimately what the author of the book of Ruth is getting at, that all of humanity has a fundamental spiritual need. This is the reality for all of humanity. And just as Naomi had returned to God and Ruth had returned to God, there is an invitation given to humanity to come and return to God and receive forgiveness and grace and mercy in our time of need. 
This whole book is pointing to the great spiritual need of every single human being. You see, every one of us lives in spiritual poverty, and our great need is redemption, to be bought with a price and set free. This is such a devastating need and reality for humanity that Oswald Chambers once wrote these words, life is not worth living apart from redemption. That is because, listen, loved ones, the very purpose of life is to know and love God. We were created to live in relationship with our Creator. That is the very heart and essence of what it means to be human to the fullest extent. But we realize as we look at the pages of Scripture and as we look at our own life experientially, our sin has caused a separation between us and God. The relationship that was supposed to give us so much joy, so much purpose, so much meaning, so much satisfaction and fulfillment in this life is now fractured beyond human repair. We have all turned away from God. Every one of us, like those in the book of Judges, doing what is right in our own eyes, rebelling against our Creator and our King, and sacrificing, often without even realizing it, the very joy of knowing and loving Him. It gets worse than that. The separation and, and the lack of relationship between us and God, it tells us and teaches us in the scriptures that not only does our sin separate us, but our sin makes us slaves. We are all, according to the scriptures in John 8, 38, Jesus says, uh, we're slaves to sin. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We live in spiritual bondage, in spiritual prisons of our own making, where we are ruled by sin and sinful passions within us. And one day we will face the ultimate consequences for our sin, the very wrath of God. But I love what Jesus said in John 8 as well. He said, yes, though everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He said this in John 8, 36, that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, he tells us that there is redemption to be found. We have this great need, and God himself can provide it. You see, to embrace a redemptive culture, we must be aware first of our true reality, our great need. Yes, the practical needs that we all have because we live in a fallen world, but even more so because we live in a fallen world, the spiritual need we have for redemption. The greatest need of humanity is not practical, it is spiritual. And it's at the heart level. We are in need of that which we cannot provide for ourselves. And at the heart of our faith is a God who showed mercy, a God who redeemed. And what's interesting is you look at this story and you look at Ruth and Naomi and you can kind of plug yourself in there and you can look at your own life and how God redeemed you. The one thing that should come to our mind when we look at every single human being is this. Not one of us deserved to be redeemed. Not one of us. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he put it like this. He said, no creature that deserved redemption would need to be redeemed. 
And here's what that does for us. When we realize that we are so undeserving of God's grace, that it's nothing we could have earned and it's nothing that we deserve, what it does is it strips away any sense of entitlement that we may be inclined to experience, any sense of superiority in our lives, that somehow, you know, God saved us because of who we were. I mean, that God needed us on team Jesus because we were that important. And when we realize and remember that we needed saving because we couldn't save ourselves, it actually keeps us tuned into the reality of every single human being on the face of the planet. And it protects us from thinking that we're better than anyone else. And it compels us to reach out to others and to strive to help meet the need that they have. There's so many valuable lessons here as Boaz rallies these uh, community leaders together and as he lays out the situation, you'll notice here that the word redeem is used six times in just four verses. This truly is a culture of redemption. And Boaz is laying out the plan and he's very strategic and he's very intentional in what he's doing. But I want you to see that just in the same way God had designed this community to be a culture of redemption, so too God has designed us as the church of Jesus Christ to be a culture of redemption. And we're set up for, uh, for this in greater ways than they were set up for this. We too have been given instruction through the word of God. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And we have been given the great commission to go to the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question is, will we function like this? God's people didn't always function like this. Yes, they were commanded to. Yes, they should have. But often they found themselves in rebellion to the clear commands of Scripture. Loved ones, we can be the same way. We can hear the Word of God speaking to us. We can hear the call to go out and meet the needs of others and share the gospel of redemption with other people. And yet we can shut our ears and close our eyes to the desperation of the world around us. We can live in our own little bubble with our own little comforts, entertaining ourselves to death, forgetting that we were desperately in need of redemption and God came running after us. I love that Boaz saw the need. He knew the need. But he planned to meet the need. And he did so with the appropriate amount of haste and planning I wonder when it comes to you and, and to me, are we planning to meet the needs of others? Are we planning to meet the needs of people in our community who have, who have physical needs? Yes, that God has given us resources to be able to, to meet. But listen, more than that, to meet the spiritual needs of the community around us. People who desperately need the gospel that God has so graciously given to us. What about when it comes to our church families? As we look around at the people that God has called us to do life with, to live in, in community with, are we looking for opportunities to meet the needs practically, but also spiritually, to build up the body of Christ, to be a blessing to one another, to bear each other's burdens? You're like, yes, yes, I, I, I'm all over that. I hear God calling me to that. I'm ready, and I'm going to start planning to meet the needs. Well, hold on. There's more you need to embrace if that's going to be a reality in your life, and, and that's this. Secondly, redemptive culture embraces the risk, great cost. You see, sometimes we run so fast towards things we want to do without realizing how much it's actually going to cost us. 
And here, Boaz has strategically laid out this plan and called this Redeemer to, to come and redeem Ruth and Naomi in the land. Uh, but he's left out some important details at this point in the story. Notice what he says, picking up in verse 5. At this point, he's talked a lot about the land. But then he says this, then Boaz says, after the man says, I will redeem it, Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redemption, redeeming excuse me, and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple little facts in this story. First of all, when Boaz goes into town, um, our translations say that he, he, he called the man to turn aside and he called him friend. Most scholars say that actually friend is a very bad translation. Really, the text is, is calling him um, Mr. So-and-so or, hey you, why don't you turn aside and come on over here for a minute? In other words, this man is intentionally, in a book that is filled with names and highlighting people, this man is left intentionally nameless. You say, why, why, would, why would the author of Ruth be trying to do that? The, the simple answer is this. He's trying to draw an intentional contrast between this man, Mr. So-and-so, and Boaz. He's trying to show the difference between these two men. One is far more honorable than the other. One is far more to be praised than the other. One is far more righteous than the other. In verse 4, we see Mr. So-and-so is interested in the land. Did you catch that? He hears about the opportunity. He, he sees a real estate investment opportunity, and he sees how this could benefit him personally, and he's like, yeah, sign me up for that. But then, Boaz in verse 5, he points out the fine print of the deal. You ever have one of those experiences? You know, those kind of too-good-to-be-true deals that you come across? And, you know, you're, you're looking at it and you're reading it like, this is amazing. What an incredible deal. I mean, this is going to benefit me like crazy. And then all of a sudden, before you sign on the dotted line, they tell you to read the fine print. And you look down at the fine print and you realize that you're about to sign your life away. All they want on top of this great deal is your firstborn, your life savings, and 20 years off the top of your life. It's amazing, isn't it? Fine print is often where you find the true cost. And this man hears the true cost, and for him, he realizes it's far greater than he initially anticipated, and he says, no thank you. 
I liked the deal when it benefited me personally, but now I see that the cost is too great for it involves self-sacrifice. It would cost him dearly. It would cost him his name because the point of redemption, as we've read here, is to raise a dead name to life. It would cost him money as he would then inherit Ruth as a wife that he had to now feed and take care of and Naomi, her mother-in-law. And not only that is the child that he would have to bear on behalf of Ruth's former husband, Malon, and the inheritance that would have to be given away to him. You see, the costs are adding up for this guy and he is realizing this is far too great. And possibly here, he's also weighing the cost of his own reputation. Did you notice that here, as Boaz explains that he was going to have to marry Ruth, he mentions again Ruth the Moabite. Now, we don't want to read too much into this, but it's very possible that this man, uh, as a faithful Israelite, still had some animosity in his heart and his mind towards the Moabites, these historic enemies of God. And the thought of marrying a Moabite, maybe he felt like this could tarnish his reputation. This was no good for him in any way. I just, I just want to remind you, loved ones, listen, it costs self-sacrifice to create redemptive culture. It always does. For this man, what he had without Ruth was better than what he would have with Ruth. It was about what others could do for him, not about what he could do for others. And is this not the great hindrance to redemptive culture? Self-interest looking to our own interests at the expense of looking to the interests of others. It's like inviting that friend over to come hang out and, you know, come on, come on over. We're going to hang out and eat some pizza. And he's like, yeah, I'm all in. And then you throw in at the end and then you're going to help me move. And he says, I'm out. We're so often driven by self-interest, by our own comfort, and we lack this desire, this yearning to meet the needs of others above our own, as we see Boaz so willing to do here. And now we're introduced here to this interesting custom of taking off a sandal to seal the deal, so to speak. In verse 7, he says, The custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and he gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. It was formalizing and legalizing the deal. They had the witnesses, and now they got the shoes. You see, what's going on here? Why was this the practice? Well, it's really difficult to say. It was more of a custom than it was a command, but many have um, seen this as relating to the, the place of the feet in terms of authority. You see, in ancient times, and especially in the Bible, your feet represented power and authority. Wherever the sole of your foot treads, that is the land I will give you. We hear that repeated often, even in the book of, of um, Joshua, for example. Where your foot landed, in other words, was a place now of authority for you. Joshua, for example, in the presence of God in Joshua chapter 5, is told to take off his sandals because he was in the presence of God. Moses at the burning bush, take off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy ground. You see, it was an issue of, of submission to the authority over that place. Or how about God putting everything under the, the feet of Jesus as we see represented uh, in, in Psalm 8, verse 6, in the authority. 
You see, what he's saying here is that he is relinquishing authority. He's saying, you go ahead. I was in the place of authority to do this. Now I am giving it up and giving it over to you. And here's what I really want you to, to take note of this morning. Where this man was unwilling to pay the great cost, Boaz doesn't hesitate to pay it in full. In fact, he's teed this whole thing up, right? He is a shrewd and wise man. He's already made it clear, by the way, he wasn't hiding this fact early on in the first four verses. He made it clear that if Mr. So-and-so won't pay, then Mr. Boaz is ready and willing. And just again, notice the characteristics of Boaz that I think should be reflected in us as well. He's willing, he is ready, he is eager, he is happy to pay the cost. There is nothing holding him back. In fact, this was his plan all along. He can't wait to be a redeemer. And did you catch this? He, he could, in effect, care less about the land. He cares only about the people. This is a beautiful picture of redemption. And it's a beautiful picture of the heart of redemption. The cost is great, but the cost is in one sense inconsequential. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll pay whatever it costs. I'll sacrifice whatever I need to in order to be the redeemer. And again, just notice that we are pointed through Boaz to Jesus Christ, the great ancestor of Boaz, who could, listen, who would see our great need and pay the great, the great cost, who was willing and ready and eager and happy to be our redeemer. In fact, he had planned it before the beginning of time. Charles Spurgeon once wrote that the heart of the gospel is redemption. And the essence of redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. That's such a, a powerful reminder of what Boaz is pointing us towards. The willingness to sacrifice himself for the good of another. It's at the heart of redemption and it is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where our Lord and Savior who planned to redeem us from eternity past would willingly, lovingly, joyfully march to the cross. Who would pay the price of his own life, the cost of his own blood so that we could be liberated and set free and be brought back into a right relationship with our Creator, to know the joy and the satisfaction and the newness of life that we were created for. I wonder, just as you, you think about the example of Boaz and the example of Jesus on the cross, are you modeling a, a culture of redemption in your life in the church? Are we a people who are looking primarily at what we can get or primarily at what we can give? Are we consumers or are we contributors? Our sinful hearts always pull us into consumer mode, but the Spirit of God, if He is dwelling within us, is constantly waging war against our flesh and pulling us back to contributor mode. Some people mistakenly think that the church exists to meet their needs. From time to time, people will walk into the church 
and uh, they'll make it very clear that they're there inspecting the church for one simple reason. How can this church meet all of my needs? What can you do for me? They're like a patron at a restaurant, not like a server at a restaurant. They march in, and though they don't say it quite like this, their mindset is the customer is always right. You know, if you're looking for the perfect church, there may be a reason why you can never find it. It's because the problem is not with the church, it's with you. It's your own selfishness. There is no perfect church. And when you walk in and you make the church all about you, what you're really doing is you're exhibiting an incredible amount of selfishness, which is going to make it impossible for you to be who God's called you to be as a contributor to the life of the church of Jesus Christ instead of simply a consumer. When you walk in the antithesis to Jesus saying, I am here to be served, not to serve so that you can give your life for me, not I give my life for you. You're missing the whole point of the gospel and you're missing the whole point of the church of Jesus Christ. Think about how this would change church culture. We all walked in not, not praying, God, what do you have for me today, primarily, although there's nothing wrong with that prayer in one sense, but walking in not saying, God, well, well, I wonder how it's going to go for me today. I wonder how I'm going to enjoy the service today. And instead walking in saying, God, what, what might I be used for today to bring blessing to somebody else, to bring honor and glory to your name, to meet the needs of those who are desperate and hurting I mean, How different would it be if our hearts cry was, God, use me here today. I mean, this would change things so radically. Most churches struggle with the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. And I can tell you that I love to see a full-fledged reversal of that with this mindset of we're here to give, not to get. It would be wonderful to see 80% of the people doing 20%. It would be wonderful to see 100% of God's people giving 100% of their lives for 100% of God's glory to be received through all that takes place in the life of the church. You see, Boaz here is so motivated by love and kindness because he has experienced that love and kindness from the Lord. And he came so prepared and so intentional. And what he planned in his heart, he paid for publicly. You see, functioning in redemptive culture will always cost us. It will. It will always cost us. It will cost us time. It will cost us money. It will cost us resources. It will cost us energy. And the truth is, loved ones, that when we contribute the way we are supposed to, we will find out that it often hurts. It's, it's a hard thing to carry a load. You feel the weight of it, and so you should. Though many are longing to be a part of redemptive culture, listen, few are willing to count the costs for it. But can I remind you that it's so totally worth it? There is nothing more that I love to see when God's people act like God's people. When we see the church of Jesus Christ functioning with this mentality of I am here to display the redemptive power of the gospel. I am here not simply to get from God, but to give for God and to give for the good of those God has redeemed and called me into this family with. 
And that, yes, cost us something, and there is a great risk involved, but I promise you, the risk does not outweigh the reward. In fact, it makes it so worthwhile in the end. You see, lastly, we see this, the redemptive culture embraces the reward, great blessing. Whatever costs we pay, we will reap in abundance by the great blessings and reward of God. In verse 11 and 12, what we see is that the community here begins to join in this process. He says at the end of verse 10 there that you are witnesses this day. The deal has been signed and sealed. Then notice this. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders... They said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The cost to Boaz, I want you to notice this is met here and is bringing about great gain for both Ruth and Boaz. I love this. Immediately here, we see this shift in identity. We see Ruth, who is now the wife of Boaz. But notice the reward that we see here, the great blessing that flows from this redemptive act and this redemptive culture. You see, the whole community now who is witnessing this begins to pray. Apparently, as people sat around and conducted the the business of the city, there would be people who would often like a courtroom, come on in and sit in and watch the proceedings and, and see what was happening in the life of the community. And here, there was a number of witnesses. We don't know exactly how many, but people have been drawn to see this all unfold. They understood, I think, something significant was happening. What they were witnessing was something profound. It was something beautiful, and it was something fairly unique even in this culture even though the law of God specified that this was supposed to be the way it is it can oftentimes be rare to find people who so faithfully follow the word of God and there's a sense of awe in these people as they've witnessed this and their awe causes them to respond together hearts united with this prayer of blessing And their prayer contains essentially three components. Three components. First, it contains a prayer for fertility. You'll notice that he says in verse 11 there um, that there was a prayer that Ruth would be made like these uh, two specific women, Rachel and Leah. If you know your biblical history and the biblical storyline, you know that through these two women came the 12 tribes of Israel. God had blessed Jacob. God had blessed Israel. And God had given him these offspring. Fertility was so critical for God to be unfolding his plan of redemption. And here, Ruth the Moabite is actually prayed to be included, think about this, amongst the matriarchs of Israel. What's so fascinating is that these witnesses and these individuals, they have no idea what they're praying for and how true this will become. This is such an astonishing prayer. The second thing they pray for is fame. 
Notice it says that, may you act worthily in Eprathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. They, they look at Boaz and they're praying that his name would be praised among the people of Israel, that because of his righteous deeds and his righteous life, his fame would spread far and wide. And finally, they pray a blessing for family. You see, fertility is, is one thing. To have offspring is one thing. But to have a family is something entirely different. And here, they link this idea of family in verse 12 to the storyline again of the Bible. May your house, there's that family idea, be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. In other words, he's tracing back the family line all the way so that we can see, listen, that what's happening here is a part of the line of Judah, that Boaz is a part of the line of Judah, which is messianically incredibly important. But interestingly, he ties it back into Perez and to Tamar, which is a failed story of a Levite marriage. Someone who was supposed to do what Boaz did, failed to do it, and yet God chose to bless anyways. And here we see this, listen, that Boaz, this worthy man, this righteous man, will be blessed with a family, the extension of his family line, the line of Judah, now, I just want you to know, as you read through this blessing, you say, how do we apply this to our lives? First of all, let me just say this. This is historically incredibly important. These are not random blessings. They have a covenantal context. They are directly, in other words, related to the Abrahamic covenant. All the way back, again, in Genesis chapter 12, so much of, of this book of Ruth has to be read in light of what God had promised to Abraham as God took this pagan idol worshiper, ripped him out of his sinful living in context, and he made with him a covenant, promising him that he would lead him to a land, that he would bless him, and he would bless him with offspring. He would make his name great. And from him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. All the nations of the earth would be gathered, as the New Testament says, into one family where we all, as Paul says in Galatians, will become children of Abraham by faith. You see, these prayers of blessing for fertility, fame, and family are prayers that relate right back to what God had promised to Abraham. And what God is showing us in this little book is that he, again, is being faithful to fulfill his promise. He is bringing about his promise of redemption, not just for Abraham, not just for Israel, but for all the nations of the earth. This is why chapter 4 ends with the genealogy that draws us all the way to the great messianic figure of King David. Now, I just want you to see in this that the greatest reward of all was being redeemed. The second greatest reward is being used to bring about, to be, to bring about excuse me, redemption for others. Not only do all of those who come to Jesus get rewarded with the blessing of redemption for their own lives, we are rewarded by the blessing of participation in the redemption of others. Now, as basic, excuse me, as a basic principle to note, again, I, I want you to notice the community involvement here. The community is participating in prayer 
and praying that these blessings would be fulfilled, linked all the way back to the, the Abrahamic covenant, which at the heart of which is the, the promise of redemption. And I just want to say that this ought to be the hallmark of redemptive culture, this idea of participating by praying. Why? Because we know that ultimately we are not the source of redemption. You and I, on our own, can save nobody. We can redeem spiritually nobody. Apart from Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God and God's faithfulness, we can do absolutely nothing to redeem another soul. We are merely the conduits of God's redemptive love and God's redemptive plan. Redemptive culture is impossible without a culture of prayer. We often say that prayer is the supreme act of dependence upon God. Well, redemption ought to be the supreme act we are depending upon God to perform. And I want to show you that while we are not under the Abrahamic covenant, we ought to be praying for these blessings as those who are part of the new covenant of God. The Abrahamic covenant, it bleeds into and it leads into this new covenant that we are a part of this side of the cross. There is both a physical and spiritual nature to the blessings that they are praying and while they are in many ways predominantly physical, they are leaning into and pointing towards the spiritual realities. While they would find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, here's what I want you to notice, church. Christ is continuing to fulfill them through us. You see, these blessings have an analogous and progressive nature to them. And redemptive culture is very similar. This ought to be, in many ways, our prayer. This ought to be what we seek. You see, redemptive culture seeks to be fertile, don't we? We long for people to be born again, not physically, but spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ, becoming children of Abraham. We must be a spiritually fertile people. We must be a people who are praying for the lost, praying for the gospel to advance, praying for opportunities, praying for boldness. And we must be a people who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, who love others like God has loved us in wise and winsome ways, who are bold and unashamed of the gospel because we believe it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. We must be a fertile people, and we must pray that God would make us fertile churches, fertile Christians who are bearing much spiritual fruit by seeing people brought to new life in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but redemptive culture seeks fame. Not the fame of our name, but the fame of the name of Jesus Christ, the one who has redeemed us, the true and greater Boaz, the one whose name we want to be spread from sea to sea, from coast to coast, to cover the globe. We live for the fame of the name of Jesus Christ. And that means this, that our reputation matters because we are reflecting Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. We live for the fame of the one who died for our sin, for the fame of the one who rose from the grave, for the fame of the one who was exalted to the right hand of the Father, for the fame of the one to whom every knee will one day bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And redemptive culture, listen, lastly, seeks family. A family 
that is made up of people who have been born again. People born again from every nation and tribe and tongue, every people group across this planet, all who have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, gathered together into the bride of Christ, the church of the living God, knit together by the Spirit of God into one family where we can grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, built up and building up, where we can serve and be served, where we can love and be loved, where we praise and worship our Heavenly Father both now and into eternity. You see, we are called to be, and therefore we must strive to embrace a redemptive culture that sees the reality, that takes the risks, and that reaps the reward, who embraces the great need, the great cost, and the great blessing, a redemptive culture that points to God in Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Father, we pray that you would embed these truths on our hearts, that we would so long, Lord God, to be a people, Lord, who have been redeemed and who have embraced a redemptive culture so that all the world might know the redeeming power of our God and King. God, we praise you that you have always been a redeemer. We praise you, Lord, for how Boaz points us towards Jesus Christ, the, the true and ultimate redeemer of humanity. And we praise you, Lord, that as the, the people of God, this side of the cross, the church of Jesus Christ, that, Father, you, you have given to us not only the privilege of knowing your redemptive power, but the privilege of participating in your redemptive plan. Oh God, would you give us grace? Would you give us help? Father, would you fuel us with a passion for the glory of your name? Would we be a people, Father, who love to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, who see, Lord, more and more people bowing the knee to King Jesus? And Father, would we be those who see your family growing exponentially because of the work you are doing in and through us for the fame of your great name? We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our King. Amen.